Welcome to Parenting Matters on Nashville Catholic Radio, WBOU 100.5 FM, sponsored by the Family Life Office of the Diocese of Nashville. Your host for the program is Dr. Parr Donahue. Dr. Parr has years of experience in pediatrics and parenting. He was named the Senior Pediatrician of the Year by the Tennessee Chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2014. Dr. Parr is the author of four books, including books on parenting entitled Messengers in Denim, The Amazing Things Parents Can Learn from Teens, and Tools for Effective Parenting. Visit Dr. Parr's blog at www.parentingwithdrparr.com. Here's your host, Dr. Parr Donahue. Welcome to Parenting Matters on Nashville Catholic Radio, 100.5 FM, and streaming throughout the world at NashvilleCR.com. Before we begin, a word about our subject. We'll be discussing what many people, especially parents of school-aged children, think is the most serious problem ever faced by our nation. Although critical race theory has divided our country along party lines, this is not a political show. We will not mention any political parties or politicians. It's very important that all parents are aware of what is being taught in many of our high schools, grade schools, and almost all of our colleges and universities. So parents, pay attention and pray. Our topic today, a critical look at critical race theory with our special guest, U.S. Air Force Colonel Sean Raceman. I'll introduce him in a moment, but first my monologue. In 1923, Marxist scholar Carl Gutenberg founded the Institute for Social Research at the University of Frankfurt in Germany. The Frankfurt School scholars are known for their brand of culturally focused neo-Marxist theory, a rethinking of classical Marxism updated to the sociological period. Current race theory can be traced to 1937 manifesto of that institution. In the late 1980s, the term critical race theory emerged from that institution, now in the United States University. As a challenge to the idea that the United States has become a colorblind society, of course, racial identity no longer had an effect on one's social or economic status. According to historians Jonathan Butcher and Mike Gonzalez, those in the movement believe the Marxist analysis that society is made up of categories of oppressors and oppressed, and the need to dismantle all societal norms through relentless criticism and replace all systems of power with a worldwide view that describes only oppressors and oppressed. Our critical race theory proponents insist that systemic racism exists in America and that all whites are oppressors and all people of color are oppressed. While there is no denying that discrimination against ethnic groups and races has occurred, our country has made a great deal of progress against it. But in my opinion, those who push CRT, critical race theory, have left the civil rights movements of Reverend Martin Luther King and by launching an attack on white people, calling all whites supremacists and racists. They are dividing our great country based on the color of our skin and igniting another race war. This is an important departure from the original goals of the civil rights movement which sought to redeem America's promise by calling for colorblind equality. Freedom of speech is also in CRT's sights. Look how conservative speakers and students are prohibited from speaking at many colleges and college administrators insisted it's because they are afraid the students will riot if they let the conservatives in. CRT blames all inequities of outcome 
on what its adherents say is pervasive racism in the United States. Now, there's so much more that needs to be told regarding CRT. And to help understand what is going on, I have asked our special guest, United States Air Force Colonel Sean Raisman, to join us. Colonel Raisman was born and raised in Jacksonville, Florida. He joined the United States Air Force in 1991 as an enlisted airman, maintaining Minuteman III ICBM missiles. He earned a bachelor's degree from Park University in 1994 in computer information systems, going to night school while in the Air Force. Colonel earned an officer's commission in 1995 and served in the Pentagon, McGuire Air Force Base, where he led a portion of the base's emergency response to the 9-11 terrorist attacks, enabling the President of the United States to maintain command and control over the Northeast air defense sector. Later, he deployed to Kuwait and participated in Operation Southern Watch, taking fire from Iraqi troops. After a tour in Korea, he served in Tampa working for General Mattis and General Austin as they oversaw the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. He then attended Naval War College, converted to cyber warfare, and successfully defended U.S. weapon systems against nationwide and unaligned cyber threat while on duty serving in the U.S. Cyber Command. He has a bachelor's degree in computers and software management, a master's of arts in national security and strategic studies, and an MBA in computer and systems management. He and his wife, Virginia, also an Air Force veteran, have two daughters, Logan, 13, and Alexa, 11. Virginia earned a bachelor's from Radford University and an MBA from Webster University, and another master's in engineering management from Boston University. Today, she is a project manager for Paralon and volunteers in several women's groups. They are baptized and confirmed Episcopalians, and most importantly to me, they are my neighbors in Brentwood, Tennessee. Wow, Colonel, I'm sorry they had to leave out so much of your bio just to squeeze you into this hour, but uh, thank you so much for coming. It's a pleasure to have you. Welcome to Parenting Matters on Nashville Catholic Radio. It's a great pleasure and honor to have you here. Thanks, Par, for inviting me. And I must say, since I've retired uh, and and now find my footing here in Brentwood, uh, you've been a great friend and neighbor, and I appreciate you uh, asking me to come on your show. Well, I'm so, you're so welcome, and I look forward to getting a lot of information out of you today. So first of all, why don't you start off by defining, defining CRT? Uh, well, that, that's, you know, that's an interesting question. <laughs> And an interesting ask because I found since I've learned about CRT that it means different things to different people. And so my understanding of CRT is that it derives from the, uh, it's sort of like the subordinate or the offspring of critical legal theory, which was begun back, I think, in the early 1900s, where those in the profession of the law uh, suggested that those in privilege or power actually create the law and they create that law to disadvantage the underprivileged in order to preserve their status and ability to um, lead the life they wanted to lead. So critical race theory derives from that. And, and from what I, what I defined it as is the, the way of thinking of life through a prism or the way of thinking of how we live our lives through the prism of race. And there are certain tenets, I think, that critical race theory depends upon. And through those tenets, they end up dividing 
our society and to oppressors and the oppressed. Do you think that there are consequences of doing this? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll tell you the first time I came in contact with this was in the military um, when I was questioned on my uh, disciplining of a, of a troop. Um, I had a troop that, that violated Air Force instruction and very nearly uh, violated the law. And so I chose a method of discipline that would, uh, I think, produce, or I thought, produce the desired outcome. We wanted to retain this troop. He was a good troop. He just crossed the line and uh, and erred, and so I chose the, the the tool of discipline and and I went to a briefing where I was questioned about my unconscious bias, and I'm like, wait a minute, why are you focusing on me and not the troop and the and the uh, violation uh, of the rules that this troop is responsible for, and and so. Uh, I started to go back and, and look, what, what are they talking about with regard to unconscious bias? And then you fast forward a few years, my kids are in school and all of a sudden I'm hearing these, these terms of, of racism and white supremacy uh, from my seven-year-old who's now today 11. Uh, and so, you know, it's just, it, it's become more pervasive, it's become more pronounced and it's become, I think, more public uh, than it has been uh, in the past. Would you think we are a racist society? Absolutely not. You know, I, I know you're a, a, a pediatrician by trade. I've always said as a parent that kids are taught to hate, that kids are taught to see skin color, and that kids are taught to bite. You know, no baby comes out of the womb, I think, knowing that biting person is, is appropriate. There has to be something that teaches a kid to bite a person. You know, I mean, they know how to bite food and they sometimes will teeth toys and things of that nature. But to go and bite a person so to hurt them, that has to that's a learned behavior. And so I think I think these kids are taught racism. And, and I think it comes down to a character issue and whether that character is that character default or, or flaw uh, comes from the home or the environment. I don't know, but. I definitely think that we are not a racist society, but there are racists among us. I mean, my white daughter uh, was subjected to some racism when we were down in, in Texas. We chose to take issue with that in our home and through our church with regard to helping her, uh, helping rehabilitate her. But, but um, you know, I don't think as a society um, we are a racist society. In fact, I, I would like to say we're a colorblind, and I, I grew up not recognizing any skin color either until, uh, in fact, I joined the military, and I was forced to know uh, who among my troops were different ethnicities. I was forced to account for that in certain formats, um, and that's when I first came in contact with, with race as a, uh, as a focus area. So you don't think that race is used to put people down out of power? No, no. I agree 100%. Well, so there are consequences of teaching this race theory. And one of them, as you mentioned, you're teaching kids to become racist and to call their classmates racist and dividing the students even in the lower grades. But are there consequences to not teaching it? 
Uh, you know, that's funny. So I just talked to my wife about this this morning. Amongst all these conversations about critical race theory, what is the redemptive quality? So rather than resist CRT, let's say we embraced it. What's the redemptive quality? You know, one of the proponents, uh, I, I don't know if you're aware of the 1619 project of the yes. New York Times. Yes. Okay. To me, that's, that's, a, uh, that's a manifestation of CRT, right? Let's try mm-hmm. and reframe our nation's founding uh, to the emergence of the white line, uh, which is the ship uh, that, that I think went to Jamestown Harbor or something yep. uh, in 1619, had 20 some odd uh, slaves and golden slaves on it. And that's what the, uh, Hannah Jones decided to frame her, uh, founding of America upon. And I think she derived most of that from this, uh, historian named Ibram, Ibram X. Kendi. Are you familiar with him? Not familiar with him, no. Okay. He won a book award a few years ago, but, but, uh, my point is the, the, I can't, find any redemptive quality in CRT, even if we embraced it. And and since I think Kendi is a major proponent of this CRT, he has a famous quote that he says, the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. And the only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Okay. so, So again, what's the redemptive quality of CRT? Well, I, I'm with you. I can't think of any, but to go back to that uh, slave trade in 1619, they have a story that the story is not quite right. They were not traded as slaves. They were the ship. People needed supplies to go back to the other side of the ocean, and they traded these men to the early settlers for supplies and they were thought of as indentured servants and after the certain number of years that they had already agreed to when they when they got them they were released as free men so they were not ever considered slaves and nor were they kept as slaves but they were released when they worked off their time now you have two daughters in the williams county schools and have rightfully been involved in the schools. Williamson County said in the paper that they weren't teaching CRT, but do you have a different take on that? I do. Uh, I think they're partially correct, right? They're not embracing the CRT construct. The problem with CRT is that it means different things to different people, I think. That's one of the challenges. The, the Within Williamson County, uh, they adopted a curriculum called Wit and Wisdom, and it's a K through eight curriculum. Uh, it was developed by Great Minds, and it apparently uh, it well it. Now my daughter, we we entered Williamson County when my daughter was in uh, fourth grade, uh, but apparently in the first and second grade uh, instructional material, there are some pretty dark stories that are used to. I think exercise some of the tenets of, of CRT. So uh, I'm kind of going to go all over the map here, but to go back to the 1619 storytelling, um, I didn't read Hannah Jones 1619 project. I didn't read the New York Times distribution of it, but what I did read was Peter Woods 1620, which was a critical response to the 1619 project. 
the the tenets of of critical race theory involve counter storytelling okay and that is the telling of a story aiming to cast doubt on the validity of accepted premises or myths especially those held by the majority so to me uh hannah jones 1619 project is a manifestation of counter storytelling and so when you get into the wit and wisdom criteria uh, or curriculum it's the counter storytelling or the type of storytelling uh, that is problematic. So I can give you a few examples. Um, there's a book within the curriculum uh, that details a mouse who knows he's going to drown and he starts contemplating his death. Uh, will it come quickly? Will it be a prolonged suffering? And then what awaits him on the other side? Are there going to be other mice to greet him? Is he going to be lonely? Is he going to be the only mouse? And uh, once he dies and he's on the other side, what if he regrets dying? Can he come back? And that is, I think, either in first or second grade. Uh, I know it's whatever whatever grade the seven-year-old is in. That's, I think, where I'm hearing from seven-year-old parents. And there are other stories. Uh, Ruby, I think, is the, the little girl who helped integrate uh, schools down in New Orleans. And that's being taught but the pictures, the illustrations in the, in the book that's being used, you know, depict white people with their, um, what is it, the hydrants, the water hoses, uh, drowning the black men or black folks. There's some, there's some violence depicted in some of the illustrations, uh, and it's, it's, it appears less about uh, Ruby, the heroine, uh, doing what she's asked to do and more about all the oppressor versus oppressors uh, battle on the sidelines. And so I think, you know, the, the curriculum itself, Wit and Wisdom, is developed in line with the International Baccalaureate Program, the IPB, IBP. Yes. So it is challenging. It does do some things that normal curriculum doesn't. But here in, in Tennessee, that curriculum failed review at the state level. It failed review two or three times, I think, if I remember correctly. Uh, and it was actually wavered uh, by the Secretary of Education. And then not only did the Secretary of Education waver the curriculum, but then the state applied a lot of money uh, to any county that accepted it for its implementation. And so Williamson County, before we got here, adopted that curriculum based on feedback from the teachers who were exposed to it, as well as the allure of the large state grant that came with it. So that is in the schools today. When you were talking about Ruby, I was thinking about the way that the riots in Seattle were depicted as being peaceful. It was kind of the opposite of what they did for, for Ruby. They ignored Ruby, and they they concentrated on the violence, if you call that, in the crowd by the crowd by the spectators by the those who were the oppressor, I guess you would say. But they did the opposite thing in Seattle. That's right. Yeah, it doesn't serve their narrative. Right. The 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 violence in Seattle and the violence in Portland Portland is justified because it's. Um, the violence that that surrounded the the integration of schools in New Orleans 
was unjustified because of who was, I guess. Uh, well, one of the things that I thought too about this whole program is that by the proliferation of multiple identities of every American is, is put in the category by race or by social economic status or by what other, other kind of thing that can divide them. And it appears to me that we have gone from a philosophy of um, one out of many, one, instead of our father. Instead, we've traded off to out of one, many. And, that, and that's, I always, even since I was a little kid, I thought this. As soon as I heard out of many, one, I thought, oh, that's so good. And mm-hmm. now we have out of one, many. Right. We're reversing e pluribus unum, right? So now this is multiculturalism and globalism at the tactical level, at the at the personal level. So rather than corporations and and you know the federal government talking about uh, global citizenship uh, and and multiculturalism, now you're actually seeing it in the neighborhood level. You know this wit and wisdom. I was saw a little video on it couple of weeks ago and they they are also into this idea of gender yeah. and they're talking about in first the first and second grades they're not allowed to use uh, boys and girls in their classroom they have to reach for them all collectively as children and then i was really confused because there was a news story in one of the papers i read and it said that this boy was really persecuted against, I guess you'd say, and they did something. They? Who are they? Well, they, of course, is he, because we can't use he anymore either. Mm-hmm. So it's getting us, as the kids, as confused as we are, and I'm easily confused probably because of my age, but I think those kids get even more confused because of the whole issue. And I think that, how does, how does that fit into the CRT, this gender stuff? Uh, so it's attempting to transform society through moral, economic, and political revolution. So the, you know, I think the gender issue is a moral issue. You know, I think personally, or I think this goes back to I think I read a study six months ago about the declining attendance in church. Oh yes, and because you have uh, an American population that seems less inclined. Uh, to attend church and recognize uh, that we're here on God's green earth uh, and and that we need to follow God's path. I think because you have folks that don't have that beacon, uh, they're all over the map. They're all over the place. And, uh, and there's nothing that is providing them uh, a sense of direction. And and because of that, I think we're we're able there. Those who want to are able to divide us into identities or into genders. Uh, and then I think that became even more pronounced during COVID. You know, when you're talking about uh, first and second graders unable to use proper pronouns, uh, then then you mask them. And you know, being a military guy and a sort of amateur historian. And I remember reading stories um, back when I was a lieutenant of certain tactics conquerors would uh, employ in order to subvert 
their captives. And one of them was to mask. They would mask their enemy when captured in order to break them down uh, and to take away their identity. So I think it's all trying to transform society, as you mentioned in your introduction. We only have about a half minute left. So could you, in that time, tell us what should parents do? How should parents react to this? I think parents should get involved in knowing what their curriculum, what the what the kids are being exposed to from the curriculum side. And you've done that. And how did you do that? Uh, I got involved in uh, school board meetings. So I started attending school board meetings and I learned how the state uh, offers the curriculum to each county and then how the districts within the county adopt those curriculums. Well, it's been a very interesting uh, half hour. It flew by. I told you it was going to. There's so many more things we could talk about, but we're out of time. But I'm just going to go right ahead and assign homework because we don't have enough time left to do another story. So get your friends and family together and listen again to what Colonel Raceman has to say about critical race theory. And then listen to my podcast, The Parent Matters Podcast with Dr. Parr. And then ask your people when you're together what they think about systemic racism. Are we a systemically racist country? And discuss how your school board and your school faculty are dealing with CRT. And have your friends, what they can do to reduce the consequence of CRT, because it's with us. We, we can't just ignore it. It's here. We have to and then make a resolution to do something about it. And send us a note. Tell us and our listeners what you, about your discussion. And if there's a topic you would like to hear discussed on Parenting Matters, let us know that. We'll find an expert to tell us all about it. Thanks for listening, and may God continue to bless you and your family. Parenting Matters is made possible through the generous donation of our listeners and sponsors and the Diocese of Nashville, shining the light of our Catholic faith in every life. This is Nashville Catholic Radio, 100.5 FM, and streaming at NashvilleCR.com. Thank you for listening to another edition of Parenting Matters with Dr. Parr Donahue. Parenting Matters is produced and recorded inside the studios at the Catholic Pastoral Center. Thanks again for listening to WBOU, 100.5 FM and streaming at WBOU.org.